This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This week's episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by Cold War. Cold War is a deep look at the true story that inspired this multi-decade romance through changing times of communism to freedom in Poland. A personal memoir by Pavel Pawlikowski that dramatizes the legend and lore of his own family roots. Winner of five European film awards, including Best Film and Best Director, and named Best Foreign Language Film by the National Board of Review and the New York Film Critics Circle. Cold War, for your consideration in all categories. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, Vanity Fair's award season podcast. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson, and I'm here in studio with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Richard. And on the line with our senior reporter, Joanna Robinson. Hello again, Richard. Uh, yeah, so we were not going to do this episode we were because we did our Golden Globes episode on Monday, but then just the powers that be said, no, you should do this one. And actually, <laughs> it's good because just you know immediately after Golden Globes news kind of came and went, then there were BAFTA nominations and DGA nominations and WG nominations. So there's like, stuff to talk about. Well, I would like to say we are back by popular demand. There you go. Yes. We're back by popular demand for the second time this week. <laughs> People are clamoring. There they is heard. a lot of clamor. They heard the news on the wind that we might be hosting the Oscars, and uh, they just couldn't get enough of us. We are Hollywood starling this award season. You know, this is a really busy time, so maybe it's good that we're doubling up. And um, I feel like, the, the you know, I filed a piece about the Golden Globes, what it means for the Oscars, and then along came these other nominations and completely kind of upended anything I'd written. M- maybe, you know, talking about how Regina King is, is it, she's fine, she's fine, you know, now that she won the Globe, even though she didn't get the SAG, but now she doesn't have a BAFTA nomination and all that. So between the two of you, like, what would you say from this list of three different, you know, awards bodies, what was the most surprising thing? Or did you feel like something really clicked into place based on any of these nominations? I think that Black Klansman is more of an Oscar favorite than I um, expected. It, it's not only like fully in there, um, but it's it's a really it seems like an actual best picture winning possibility. Like I'm I'm quite sure now. I feel very confident it'll get nominated, and I feel like it actually has a chance to to win. You know, we and yeah. I I don't know about you guys, but I think of best picture nominees as sort of two groups because there's so many nominations now. There's up to you know, generally nine every year, um, but there's like the ones that could actually win, and then the ones that are like really psyched to be nominated. Mm-hmm. And I just moved Black Klansman into the other into the other one category to the other when I see 
that it's, you know, it's Spike is nominated for a DGA and it is nominated for, you know, all these BAFTAs, including Best Film, Best Director, you know, who knows, but that's what it feels like. And and I would would also like to say that this usually happens every year and is one of the reasons that I continue to do this um, in spite of sometimes wondering if it's the silliest <laughs> thing in the world to spend this much time talking about, which is like there's some movie that I see and I love and I'm like, well, the Academy's never going to go for this. And then, you know, and then it happens. So that's yeah. cool. The last time I think was Moonlight and Beast of the Southern Wild a few years ago, you know, so it's it's cool when that happens because this is a edgy film and it's yeah. a kind of amazing film. It's dark and and like gonzo is I think the word and it came out in August you know Mm -hmm. and 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 it's just you know I I don't know what the we kind of spent a lot of time trying to get into side voters heads and imagining what the psychology is that keeps a film you know lingering and 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 then does a sort of like does away with something like first man you know what's the kind of um, chemistry there but maybe it was screener screeners or whatever but like for whatever reason black landsman has just really held on which is great you know and i think also you know it's a very very tangential thing in a way but like i'm sure that terry fermo and the rest of the people at can are excited that like finally something that premiered there is like in the oscar hunt which is you know it that that like that you know it's been a while since that i mean carol wasn't even a best picture nomination you know so it's good for can too and Adam Driver has gone from like, oh, wow, Adam Driver's in there to like, yep, Adam Driver's yeah. in there. Yeah. I will say, I, you know, I don't think John David Washington's going to get nominated. He hasn't been nominated for much. Mm-hmm. But I just noticed this at the Golden Globes. If you're going to inherit anything from a parent, imagine inheriting Denzel Washington's voice. That's like the coolest thing you yeah. could possibly inherit. Like every time he yeah. talks, I'm just like, what a lucky guy. What a wonderful thing. Yeah. Anyway. And he was a pro football player before he was yes. an actor. He's, just he's an amazing in the yeah. film. And he's just yeah. been like a really cool, fun, sort of great person to have around in award season. So I think a lot of amazing things will happen for him in the future. Yeah. But in the meantime, like he's, I think, helping to propel this movie or keep this movie in the conversation. Yeah, for sure. Joanna, did anything stand out for you um, like, like Black Klansman did for Mike? I was... Interested in the narrative, you know, the BAFTA nominations came out late last night. So there were some few stalwart like awards people up late with their hot takes uh, that I was reading. And and one of the things I saw was like, oh, what a disappointing like um, lockstep with expected Academy choices. Because this is something like, you know, obviously the UK people are up. And like the, uh, the idea of like the BAFTAs distinguishing themselves from the Oscars versus falling in line and being predictive of the Oscars has been kind of a conversation around this particular awards body um, for the last few years. It's sort of like, I think they used to like to, or some people used to like to feel like the BAFTAs were much more distinctive or much more interested in homegrown films. And now I think people get worried that it's absorbed into the larger Hollywood machine. And I just think, I think you see both. I think you see some fun, like, kickups for British things, like, um, having Claire Foy in there for First Man, which, you know, just feels like that's a performance that has been, you know, not as lauded as it might be, but like, you know, she's, she's one of theirs. They're excited about her. It seemed like that sort of thing seems like an important thing. Stan and Ollie, you know, getting three nominations mm-hmm. is like very BAFTA. <laughs> Steve yeah. Coogan, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing, though, is that um, some one of the narratives I saw was like, look how the BAFTAs have been influenced by 
the Golden Globes, but that's like that's a that's a poor take because I was looking up the nomination window and um the nominations started in like December fourteenth. So like I I don't think that Green Book being on on the BAFTA nominations list is like a reaction to an award ceremony that happened three days ago, if that makes sense. But it is a good confirmation that this film, uh, which is a film that maybe we weren't taking as seriously as we should have um, before the Globes is a serious, serious contender here. Yeah, it's one of the five best film nominees here. Peter Farrelly um, getting a DGA nomination. Which is wild. Uh, in if you place of Ryan Coogler or, or whomever. Or Barry Jenkins or, Barry Jenkins. or Mariel Heller or, you know, yeah. um, no no female directors nominated at the, uh, the DGAs. But yeah, I mean, it, that movie is undeniable. And, and I think we were talking a little bit before we recorded, um, Mike and I in studio, that like, Mike, you, you're kind of feeling like that one just given – the map of like what's what's in the in the kind of front runner status or or the the few films that are like the green book could kind of burst through that because it has what the, the most like broad consensus support or like i mean it's hard to you know with the whole tiered balloting it's tricky like we were suggesting on monday that maybe like black panther would benefit from being a lot of people's number two movie or whatever but like green book could be up there too yeah know? and and i think that also I don't know. I mean, I don't want to overdo the political side of this because I don't mm-hmm. think I think we're more attuned to this than a lot of Academy voters. But on the other hand, if the other ones like split the woke vote, you know, right. like like and and you just get a bunch of people who are like, it's a dang good movie, you know, like it it could win, it could sail through. I do see signs of a little bit of a brewing foot race between A Star Is Born and Green Book. I think there are some early signs of even some negative campaigning going on. Yeah. So, you know, I think that Green Book is is serious, really could win Best Picture. And I think Roma's in there, but I still am just struggling to see, like, where the traction is for Roma. I think Quaron will win director. Yeah. And I feel like it's possible. I would not be surprised, put it this way, if the Green Book argument was... Of course, Quaron should win director, but this is the movie that really like does what an Oscar movie does. It's it it hits you in the heart, you know, yeah. and it's like a crowd pleaser. And Roma has such a historical precedent to kind of beat in that like no Spanish language film has ever been nominated for Best Picture, so it'll probably it'll probably do that. Also, going to say like it'll win foreign. Don't worry, he'll right. get the yeah. foreign. Right, right, right. You know, I mean, yeah. I think that's already in the interest of spreading wealth. They'll sort of yeah. Um, no, that's true, and I think that you know. Yeah, Green Book's presence at the BAFTAs, which, like, it's telling, you know, whether or not you think it's telling it well, it's telling a particularly American story, um, and yet really resonated with the, you know, British Academy. So I'm going to say one more thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Cameron Collins wrote, I think, a very sort of incisive piece about Green Book that crystallized, some, like, a lot of the criticism, and then the folks at Shadow and Act talked to the family of, of Dr. Shirley, and and that was all there. Um, Peter Farrelly also talked to, to our Nicole Sperling and made his case and didn't shy away from it, you know. So I think it's interesting. I mean, I think they, they have not shied away from kind of, like, pushing back on that and, and at least saying, like, hey— we can disagree about tactics or, or like what, you know, whether this is a hundred percent non-problematic or not, but like my heart's in the right place. I'm trying to make a movie that's about reconciliation. So I think that that will probably be meaningful to, you know, to, to some of the people who are a little bit on, on edge being like, is it okay to vote for this? I think that, right. that, that may, you know, be helpful for that cause. And, and him talking to Nicole was a bit more measured than his sort of blustery speech at the Golden Globes, you know? Well, the speech was, at the Golden Globes was a, 
was a problem. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that did not sit well with a lot of just, people. Well, also because it was just too chaotic. But yeah. he's um, he's not going to win director, so. No. <laughs> but will he get nominated? Will I mean, win you know, like, um, and I, and I look, I I was unaware of the historical issues, particularly to Doctor Shirley's life when I saw the movie in Toronto, and I was like, well, for what it is, it's really you know, it's good. It's 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 yeah. well acted. I, I was engaged. But like, was the direction something that I really was like, yes. I mean, but maybe that's the thing. It's the direction you don't really see. You know, it's right. it's it's tightly built in a way so you don't notice all the work behind it um, versus something that's a little more stylized or whatever. But, right, well, we'll have to watch it again now with like, is this really going to win Best Picture or Eyes? I, <laughs> <laughs> I had mentioned Barry Jenkins not, you know, getting nominated for the DGA, but also Regina King did not get nominated for Supporting Actress at the BAFTAs, which... I think I keep saying, well, the narrative has been unsettled by her not getting a stag nomination or whatever, and then saying, but I think I think she's still a front runner, and it's like, but is she? If she's, you know, I mean, that's two major awards things that didn't even give her a nomination. Um, it's not like she got there and lost. So I'm kind of curious what you guys think is happening with Regina King, and if she doesn't win, is it definitely Amy Adams's? I'm still on like on the Regina King train myself. Like I don't, I don't know the Baftas are weird sometimes. And I know that like the BAFTAs with the SAG award combined feels like troubling uh, for our chances for Regina King, who I think we'd all be thrilled to see win the Oscar. But I don't know. Uh, There's something in me that says like, whatever the BAFTAs have decided to do here. And like, to be, to be perfectly honest with you, there has been a cloud around the BAFTAs in the past of like, are they as, interested or, or open to like non-white performances as other awards bodies. But there is a Viola Davis, a like kind of surprising Viola Davis nomination in this BAFTA crop here. So I don't think like we can particularly fling that, you know, specific thing at them. But if, Be- if Beale Street uh, did not land with them at all, um, I, I don't know that that knocks Re- Regina's chances more broadly in the Oscars. Maybe they associate James Baldwin with France. I don't know. It might be. Um, oh, that could be it. <laughs> it's, it's ultimately, it's an yeah. anti-France vote. They're too literary. I, they're, they're, they're too aware of James Baldwin's life. I yeah. think if you um, look at this supporting actress, I think, look, it's never great when you don't get nominated in two of these sort of predictor sets. But if you look at this specific set of BAFTA supporting actress nominees, Amy Adams, we all assume will will go all the way through and maybe win, as you point out. Claire Foy is kind of surprising and a very British person, you know, who is better, has done a bunch of like important British TV stuff in addition to The Crown. So like has, I think, a little more traction there. Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, both in a very British, Brit-friendly, the favorite, which really like cleaned up. We Actually, we should talk about that, how much it cleaned up. And at, it depicts uh, Britain in such a beautiful, <laughs> warm way. Well, I think it tapped yeah. into the yeah. self-hatred oh, of fully. anti-monarchist Brits, you know, <laughs> yeah. which uh, is one of my favorite <laughs> groups of people. And then on the other hand, you got Margot Robbie, Australian, but, you know, part of the, uh, whatever you call it, the former empire, in Mary Queen of Scots. That, to me, is the quite a surprising nomination that's not likely and to be replicated. And she popped up at SAG too which is so weird so maybe maybe but like no, we're wrong I, and joanna you mentioned late night snarky tweets about the baftas i had one of my own which was like imagine a group of british people seeing marco Ruby and queen queen squats and, and hearing her accent and being like that's good i mean but then yeah. well i'm not british so maybe it is good i Wait, don't know but no but also i think another thing that we have that we struggle with a little bit with Mar- with mary queen of scots is it's done by the donmar warehouse which is like yeah. at least used to be the hippest like you know sam mendes was the director there yeah. now the, the director, Josie Rourke, who's the Josie head Rourke, of, yeah who directs mary queen of scots is the head of the donmar warehouse and i'm pretty sure i mean saoirse ronan as far as i can tell is 
talking in her normal Irish voice. I don't think she's even doing a Scottish accent. She's doing, a, I think, a little burr here and there, a little bit like in okay. the R's and stuff like that. But I think it might po- be a Donmar thing to just like, don't bother doing accents. It's actually tacky. Let's right. just like, let's just act. Right. I, I don't know. Like, I'd actually like to know the answer to that. But but there are some Donmar-y things that if you know it's Donmar, you're like, ooh, interesting choice. And if you don't, you're like, what's wrong with this movie? Right. So the Brits, at least, would be uh, attuned to, to, to those things. You mean like how almost all the costumes of Mary Queen of Scots are made of denim, <laughs> which is my favorite like detail about Mary Queen yeah, of Scots? Yeah, I think there's a lot of... Th- that movie, to me, I didn't... I intentionally, frequently don't read that much about a film before I go see it. And I was sitting there going, what the hell is wrong with this movie? And then afterwards, I'm like, oh, it's a bunch of... It's a theater movie. Thoughtful choices <laughs> yeah, theater by theater movie. people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a bunch of... Awful choices by theater people <laughs> is my favorite review of Mary Queen of Scots. That's what I mean. The fact that like Claire Foy and Margot Robbie are in there, and I don't anticipate that they'll be there in the final Oscar roundup, makes me not worry about Regina getting a nomination. But if we're worried about her getting the win, I don't know. I I, I don't know why I'm like not. I refuse to budge off this train now. I don't know that I was even there a couple days ago. The funny thing about it is that, like, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, so if Regina King doesn't win, um, which I, I know I want her to, I think that, you know, she's 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 great in the movie and, you know, she's had a great long career. And I'm like, okay, so if she doesn't win, then Amy Adams is going to win. And I'm kind of rolling my eyes about that. And it's like, but I love Amy Adams. And she's been, this will be her, what, sixth, seventh nomination. She's never won before. That would be great. You know, it, 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 she's in a movie I don't love, but, like, she, I think yes. she's good in it. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of the same thing with when Glenn Close won on Sunday night, where I was like, I had been kind of, like, rooting for, you know, other people sort of in my head and saying, ah, I don't know about Glenn. Like, that's kind of a boring choice. But then when she got on stage, I was like, oh, right, this is fun. Like, this is great. Like, she deserves this, you know. So I, I Maybe think... Maybe there's a, just a big it's time wave <laughs> sweeps over the right. voting body. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, if Amy Adams wins, like, fine. I mean, I don't, again, don't love Vice, but that's, you Just know. pretend it's for sharp objects. Well, exactly. I'm, there you I'm go. there. That's where <laughs> I am. One other yeah. thing probably for us to keep in mind is, you know, we tend to think of the, obviously there's, you know, the majority of Academy voters are Americans, but a lot of, I, I think, I don't know about the majority, but a big chunk of the ones that have been added in the last three years are international. So, um, so these international sort of considerations, I think, are more important than they used to be, and and may affect you know these outcomes. I, maybe Beale Street is a very American film. It's you know dealing with these incredibly American dynamics. I don't know. Um, it may be that it doesn't quite connect as well with Brits, although they certainly have their own and it doesn't relevant issues. It doesn't pander the way that Green Book might to sort of a simple fix. Or a you know, or a prescription for for this. It, it's it's a it's a bit more despairing, even though there's sort of a hopefulness to it at, at the same time. There's a slight ding on um, Bohemian Rhapsody in the BAFTA in the BAFTA nominations, which is that it is not nominated for best film. It was nominated for outstanding British film, which is sort of like a slightly lesser, if I may be forgiven, category. Um, but the favorite is nominated for both. So it's not like it couldn't have been nominated for both. It's not like we're saving it for British, you know? So that's, I don't know, just in light of some of the conversations around some people voicing their preference that like, okay, maybe on a Rami Malek, but not the broader film because of the Brian Singer implications, please. Um, I don't, I, like, I, I'm curious what you guys think of, I mean, we always talk about controversies that go in hand in hand with films and for Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book to walk away uh, at the Globes with with the top prizes, for everyone to sort of go like, ah, oh, well, Hollywood Foreign Press, who, who knows, they're crazy. But then to watch 
what the controversies are that kick up, like around the Brian Singer thing with Bohemian Rhapsody, like you've got Evan Rachel Wood, like calling it out on Twitter, you know, that seemed to be a sharper reaction of like, you know, and Brian Singer doing them no credits by crowing on Instagram about it. You know, that seems to me to be a more damning sort of reaction to Bohemian Rhapsody than Green Book, which I also saw reactions to, but it's mostly like people linking to Cam Spies or something like that being like, let's be thoughtful about this, but not like, let's kick green book out of bed entirely well yeah i mean i think going back to something that mike you said earlier um about us being more aware of stuff than maybe your average awards body voter you know and i think that like there was joe carnahan the writer and director tweeted out something yesterday maybe saying uh, or tuesday rather uh saying what's the problem with bohemian rhapsody i don't understand why people are mad about this and like christine vashon like the kind of you know super indie producer, like linked to a piece by Peter Connect from CBC about how it kind of pink washes Freddie Mercury's queerness, which also, I guess, touched on the Brian Singer thing. So like it, it, there really are varying um, levels of awareness of these particular controversies. And I think that like my tendency is to read a certain kind of like malevolent passiveness into that. But like I think sometimes people are just aren't aware. They just like didn't pay attention because they're not on Twitter every day or whatever the same way that we are. And I guess I'm a little bit blinkered about like how many people that affects, you know, and I think it's a lot more than I would like it to be. But and and certainly think it is. Well, my gut is coming out of the Golden Globes. If you were an Academy voter, you're you might be if you were your sort of standard issue Academy voter, not super plugged into this stuff, but like vaguely aware of it. You're kind of like. Yep, I thought Green Book would do pretty well. I do like that movie. And you'd be like, those guys are nuts giving it to Bohemian Rhapsody and let's not embarrass ourselves the way they did. That's just my gut. And it has a little bit more, I think, to do with like the movies themselves. And, you know, it's like what Ethan Hawke said when he came in here a couple weeks ago. Like, you made how many hundreds of millions of dollars? That's your award. Like, I don't think that the, uh, and I think for something like Bohemian Rhapsody, especially, that's not it's not really breaking any ground. It's It's got all this complicated shit going on with it. It's it's like there are other achievements to to reward this year. I, maybe it'll get into to best picture as, you know, as a nomination, but I'd be shocked if it if it really won. I don't think of it yeah. as something that could possibly win. Mark Harris, Oscar expert, was saying that, like, he, he has a hard time imagining Bohemian Rhapsody getting the required amount of number one votes to get a nomination or whatever. He's like, that's a really hard path to tread for that movie. Yeah. But we'll we'll see. I mean, I think that the BAFTAs, you know, it is a British film. It's about a Brit, you know, sort of British cultural royalty. And you I, know. Yeah, I think this, to your point, Joanna, like this nomination is like, hey, we had a blockbuster this year cool you know like let's let's make sure we mention it i don't know the highest grossing music biopic ever by yeah like it's an achievement for britain despite all the complications yeah um speaking of like directors and well not brian singer in in particular but something i loved about the dga nominations is that they do i mean uh, you know they don't have any women on there which is bad especially because there were a lot of good films directed by women this year last year but um they do the first feature award which um means that people like bo burnham get to get in there um matthew heineman who directed a private war a movie i loved and i think very few people saw and then boots riley for sorry to bother you a sundance breakout that's all about unionization and racism and like is really like wacky and political and um you know so i think that's the th- there's something kind of hip about those choices from the dga which is funny to offset that by like the kind of square choice of peter farrelly so it's like an it's it's an interesting mix there um you know and I would love to see Boots Riley's speech at the DGA Awards should he win yes. for Best First Feature. Oh, me too. 
isn't it funny to live long enough to see Peter Farrelly become the square choice for um, yeah, right? Best Director nomination at the Oscars? Yeah, and you know the the WGAs have some fun, like a few fun things in there, like um, A Quiet Place or Eighth Grade. Uh, once again, some Bo Burnham. Like you know, I I, I really want Bo to still be in the conversation um, this season. Oh, and let me shout out Matthew Heineman, who directed A Private War, a little Vanity Fair log rolling, but based on Marie Brenner, our own Me Brenner's right. uh, article. And it's a really good movie, and Rosamund Pike is fantastic in it. Yeah. I think it's really, it's, it's tough watching, but I think it's really worth it. Yeah, I, speaking of Bo Burnham, Joanna, I uh, I ran into him at the New York Film Critics Circle Awards dinner, which was on Monday night of this week. And um, he's A, so much taller than I ever kind of realized like he just towers <laughs> over everyone but he also was just like totally charming and when he went up to accept his award he had a little steve martin was a presenter for a different category and he had like a little back and forth with him from from the stage and like like he can work a room that kid and and and, and it, but it doesn't feel effortful so i feel like the youtube i know shocking right, right? <laughs> from massachusetts from boston um he's got the gift of gab you know and i guess you know regina king gave a good speech there so like uh, richard e grant gave a great speech so i don't think there were many academy members in the room but like you know they're all they're all good at this award stuff so i hope to see them get to do more i wanted to say just just from the outside i love like i love that ceremony that you guys have i think it's one of the loveliest i love the way that you guys have people do tributes like let's get because andrew Rannells is in um black monday showtime show with regina yeah. hall yeah which i got this great screener like shout out to the showtime publicity team i got the best screener package of all time for for black monday but andrew Rannells giving like a you know a tribute to regina hall is like a really fun part like a fun vacation from the like expected award season stuff that we're seeing Do you oh know what totally I mean? it was it was yeah really lovely. yeah and um and the night kicked off with martin scorsese introducing um paul schrader with an award so it was yeah it was a fun night um but uh back to the broader stuff um, before we go to an interview with sandy tam that um cam collins did is there a movie for both of you? It's kind of a dark question. Is there a movie that you think, that, like one film that you think could just get like blanked completely at the Oscars? Like, in, maybe not in terms of nominations, but like something that's really fallen by the wayside. I mean, First Man, obviously, I think. But um, and then beyond Regina King, I think Beale Street's in trouble, which is a shame. That was jumping to mind for me, too. Yeah. I might have mentioned earlier, I did a impromptu high stakes Oscar bet last night and I picked if Beale Street could talk uh in cinematography just because like that's what, that's what my heart wanted so you know you know me always voting with my heart I think it also has music uh possibilities mm-hmm. for that beautiful oh, score yeah. that Nicholas Bertel did so yeah it's a really it's a film that really has stuck with me longer than I kind of expected despite the fact that I love Barry Jenkins generally um I guess I'm a little worried <laughs> that Black Panther is going to get nothing. And I, like I was arguing last night, I was like, it's got to get some technicals at least. Like it's got to do some like Mad Max Fury Road stuff in the technicals. Um, but what if it doesn't? And then Black Panther walks away with nothing. Like I think it should be honored for something for what it was this year. Um, I don't think it was the best picture, best film of the year, but I think it should be honored for its contribution to the culture this year. And I would be really disappointed if it, if it wasn't. It'll be 
a bit disappointing, even if it just does that thing that the best superhero movie of the year does, which is win like best VFX or whatever, you know, um, because right. I think there right. was a long stretch of this year where we thought this thing could, you know, would be a best picture serious contender, you know, and, and maybe it still will be. But uh, it's, so far lately, it hasn't been looking quite like that. Yeah. And it, it, Joanna, it's funny you talk about, um, you know, uh, to be old enough when we're Peter Farrelly's the square choice. It's funny to be old enough where I'm like rooting for that little underdog Disney Marvel movie. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, like, but I feel that way about it. When I was writing my Golden Globes write-up, I kind of ended with, like, you know, that we had been theorizing about maybe, like, you know, it wins because it's a number two on a lot of ballots. And I was like, oh, that would be nice. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, you I, know. There's a lot of films, like, there's a lot of films that made a bajillion dollars last year that I don't feel this way about, obviously. Like, Avengers Infinity War, even though, like, oh, the VFX are kind of amazing. Like, I, I'm okay if Avengers Infinity War walks away with nothing, despite it being, like, this big, big, big event. But Black Panther just, like, is this emotional event as well. And so that just feels more valuable to me, obviously. I think it really is quite a hill to climb. And not to go back again to the Ethan Hawke conversation, but like in his previous comments, I think there are a lot of people, you know, who just agree that like, hey, if you make superhero movies, that's great. And your reward is the gigantic wads of box office. But like, this is not about that. And I and I frequently feel that way, to be perfectly honest. Like, I have no interest in seeing the vast majority of superhero movies. I'm like, I know the whole, the beats, like, I'm familiar with this. But getting people into the headspace of, like, no, there is a real craft to this. There's an art to it when it's done extremely well and hits all of these marks and, you know, and represents some kind of cultural breakthrough. Like, that's worth celebrating. I just think that hill is still maybe harder to climb than we than we thought. I will just say that if we wind up in a world where I have to say the phrase Oscar winner Suicide Squad and I don't get to say the phrase (laughs) Oscar winner Black Panther, I'll be very upset. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen. (laughs) And going from a huge movie to a very small but interesting one, um, we're going to go to Cam Collins' interview with Sandy Tan, who is the director, star essentially of Shirkers, which is on Netflix, a very interesting movie about filmmaking and there's sort of a mystery element to it. Um, And it's a great conversation between uh, two very smart people. So enjoy. We'll be back after this short message from one of our sponsors. Set against the backdrop of 1950s Poland, Cold War follows two people of differing backgrounds and temperaments who begin an almost impossible romance. Driven editorially and emotionally by its music, Cold War, shot in shimmering black and white, is more than a stunning love story. It's an epic narrative, directed by Pavel Pawlikowski, winner of Best Director at Cannes International Film Festival. Cold War is the winner of five European Film Awards, including Best Film and Best Director, and has been named Best Foreign Language Film by the National Board of Review and the New York Film Critics Circle. Cold War, for your consideration in all categories. This is Chaos and Collins from Critic for Vanity Fair, and I'm on the phone with the wonderful director of the Netflix documentary Shirkers, which is one of the best documentaries that I think Netflix has has released. So we're really excited to be speaking with you, Sandy from L.A. Hi. Hi. <laughs> glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, glad to meet you uh, virtually. Yeah. I just want to jump right into this movie because I think one thing that I've had a lot of fun talking to people who haven't seen it yet about is just how to prepare them for what it's even about without revealing, <laughs> without revealing, because, you know, it's like there are a lot of things happening in this film and I don't want to kind of reveal things that I think need to be revealed in the course of watching it. But maybe yeah. you could give us a rundown that <laughs> that as the director, maybe you have a, a keen sense of what not to reveal. I'm likely to make, like, to, to, to do too many spoilers, 
but it's um it's really funny how on Facebook and everything I have like so many people strangers in the world who've seen this and just say just see it I can't describe it just see it <laughs> but I will try to describe it um so basically Shirkers is about back in the 90s me and my teenage friends we were teenagers in Singapore trying to make the first independent road movie uh which I wrote and I played the lead in and it was called Shirkers Nobody was making films at the time in Singapore. This was 1992. And we worked with my mentor, this mysterious man named George Cardona, who was ostensibly an American. And, um, and after shooting Raps, um, he vanished with the footage. And we had shot this on 16 millimeters, so there were no copies, no prints, no video. Uh, and he vanished. And for 20 years, I've been searching for this missing thing in my life, this missing you know, this traumatic episode I've been trying to deal with. And then it re-enters my life. And as a grown-up, um, I'm a novelist. I, I mean, I, I became a novelist. I moved to LA and I go on this detective search and hunt to piece together the largest jigsaw puzzle mystery of my life. Right. Yeah. And I mean, even just in the way that you're describing it just then, I think part of the reason that anyone who wants to tell their friends to watch the movie struggles is because there's so many components to this. And I think, you know, there's there's partially just like the coming of age story, coming of age in Singapore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also like the the movie within the movie, like you showing clips of, yeah. of the film that you've recovered within this documentary. And then there's like this mystery of like you tracking down the film and of George, yeah. this mysterious man. Yeah. Can I also add a second coming of age story, which is the coming of age of me um, so many years later, like feeling like, you know, I hadn't quite grown up because of this, this episode in my life when I was a teenager, um, you know, kind of keeping me suspended uh, in a state of suspended youth or something of unresolvedness. And um, I feel like making this film, I finally can grow up. It's a, it's a very belated coming of age story in which I reclaim my voice and my own story. Right, absolutely. And maybe we can actually even sort of start from the end in that way. How did you finally land the footage of your movie? Well, um, you know, around well, September 11th, 2011, which is like 10th, the 10th anniversary um, of this traumatic event for the, the nation, uh, I got this email from a person who was related to, to, the, to the man who stole the film. They found this footage, um, 70 cans, 70 cans of 16 millimeter film totaling 700 minutes, they asked, was I interested in getting them back? And so this, you know, opened this, I don't know, this, this like rabbit hole for me that I knew I'd be sucked into and then be consumed by for years. So this person began sending me boxes of these, uh, the footage as well as all the paperwork related to shirkers that was taken away from me 20 years ago. And um, it took me three years before I could you know, kind of open up those boxes. They sat in my house for three years. Oh, wow. Before I, I had the courage and the, I don't know, financial fortitude to to deal with this this kind of crazy thing. It's like reopening this huge wound and having to get in touch with um, the other people whose lives were affected by this debacle the, the as well. So um, it took me three years, and that's how the whole journey began. It's wild to hear you say that it took you three years to to open the canisters because my prevailing sense from watching the film is just that so much of this film is about what happened to your friendships, like the the other young women that you made this film with, um, Jasmine and Sophia, mm-hmm. and you, you know your collaborators. Just so much of this film is about what this event did to all of you and what it did, how it fractured your your ties to each other. Yeah, seems to be a, a really 
a, a big part of that. But you reunited with these other women for the making of this new version. Yeah, um, it was it was a, it was a difficult thing. I mean, it's still a very sore point, you know. And and when we talk about when Sophie, Jasmine, and me, and we all live in different cities in the world. I live in L.A. Sophie lives in New York, and Jasmine still lives in Singapore. And the three of us are united forever and bound by this by shirkers, you know, for good and for for better or for worse. And it's just something that when you bring up, it's like such a toxic subject that you know we revert to being teenagers arguing about things as if they were, happened yesterday, even though this was 25 years ago now. So it's a, it's a complicated thing. I mean, but they are the only people who kind of have experienced it as as keenly and as deeply as I have. Like, there are other people on the, the project, because we were all teenagers, so all, like, on the crew, it was, like, our friends from high school providing their free labor. And some of them, ha- you know, having just seen this version of Shirkers, like my film, they had no idea all this was going on. And they realized that I was shielding them, that we were protecting the rest of them from all of this darkness that was going on underneath the surface. Right. And I should say, I mean, my impression from from the documentary, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your film became kind of mythological at some point. It seems like other people were aware of this project that had disappeared, that it, even even as people hadn't seen it, um, people were aware of it that, it, that it was that it was this huge question mark, this like this absence in like Singapore's cultural history, this thing that everyone knows exists, but no one can see. Yeah. And, and, and also, like, nobody knew what it looked like and nobody knew, um, like, when you talked about, like, having shot at 100 locations with 100 extras and getting the largest dog in the world and largest dog in, in Singapore and, you know, all these fantastical locations and characters, um, nobody would quite believe you because there was no proof. So, therefore, they would it would seem like you were making it up, you know? Right. That was hugely frustrating because I realized I sounded like a loony person. I had to learn to kind of tone it down or shut up about it. And I, that's what I did. And I just repressed the whole episode because I realized there was no way I could actually prove that this actually happened, that we actually, you know, did, did accomplished this monumental feat um, right. until the, the rediscovery of this this footage. Right. And maybe it's worth, you know, rewinding a little bit to, can you tell us a bit about Singapore in the 90s? Because I think one thing that's really striking for me when I was watching this was for you to say that in like the early 90s, you would have made the first independent film. And that's like, that's just mind blowing to hear. Can you tell us a little bit about the scene at that moment and and how it could be that you in the 90s could be, you know, what was the film industry like? Was there one? Were there other filmmakers? Yeah, it was like a whole, like a bunch of, I mean, a few little people were, I guess, doing different films. And I, I guess I would, I would be very careful about calling it, I guess I should be careful about calling it the first independent um, film. I would call it maybe the first independent road movie or the first independent um, film of that sort, you know, right. like shot on location. Because, you know, there's a lot of undocumented stuff that was going on and, and stuff in different languages. Not many. I'm just like, I'm talking about a handful of people that might be offended because um, they, their film looked like a studio film, but they made it independently. You know, like films that cost much more than ours and that had grown-ups attached to them. This was a, a film made by kids who were just going out in the street and, and making shooting the movie based off the first draft, written by a crazy 18-year-old, 19-year-old like myself. And um, so it was the first of its kind. And in Singapore, you know, in the, in the 1990s, it was really hard to see movies. Um, it was a different world. Um, the internet did not exist. There were very few of us who were interested in movies of the kind that I was interested in. Um, I can count on one hand uh, the number of people who were interested in David Lynch and the Coen brothers um, and Jim Jarmusch, who were my heroes. 
And, you know, we would go seeking out their work. Um, you know, I developed a clandestine videotaping network with my cousin in Florida who wow. had a parents, parents who had like, um, you know, an account at Blockbuster so I could get her to kind of rent Blue Velvet and, you know, Raising Arizona, films I read about only in magazines but could never see. And they had her tape them on VHS tapes and mail them over to me in Singapore. And this is how I watched a lot of those films. I mean, this is how you you had to get hold of contraband in the most um, creative way you could just because you wanted to be inspired. You wanted to, to see something else that wasn't just, I don't know, like um, some Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone shark movie or something because that's all that played in Singapore. Right. Yeah, I mean, and and that and that was what was partially so interesting for me to learn about within the context of a documentary because you force us to really think about just these cultural imports and exports, yeah, and how they might you know how they land in your hands and then how you sort of develop your own kind of style when you're making your own movie, but that you're combining you know what you have in Lynch and Coen Brothers with your own experiences and your own imagination and making something. Mm-hmm. Just new. Yeah, because I, I really wanted to, um, you know, like Singapore is the smallest country in the world as far as I know. And it's, um, you can like cross the country in 40 minutes from one end to the other. I mean, that's how small it is. It's like one fifth the size of Rhode Island. And I thought, why not make a movie, like a road movie, a heroic um, road movie that would make it seem as like as, as, as rich as the biggest country in the world. Like just like go on this quixotic, uh, you know, mission of, of just doing this very surreal, curated version of Singapore, because everybody knows Singapore as being this very staid um, place where everything's gray and everyone's well-behaved. And I just wanted to show a different version, a version that was in my head, you know, and in the way that the Coen brothers show a different version of America than, than is, is true in real life. Right. Um, and David Lynch as well. And I just thought, why don't I just was desperate to show my version of Singapore in that kind of spirit. Yeah, and then you also, I mean, and I think I found this especially moving as we're revisiting some of the footage from from the original Shirkers, you are also a good about pointing out things that have changed in Singapore. And something that was yeah. really striking to me was just that, you know, in your footage, what's also being recovered are these things that were lost, th- things about Singapore that were lost, places that were, that, are, that have changed. Yeah, because like one of the my impetus for doing it is that these buildings um, were just getting torn down every day. Like these places were just going to go missing. I mean, like the fact that there were so many, there's a disproportionately large number of mannequin shops in the center of town, which I found, I found extremely surreal and, right. and amusing. And I thought, you know, like you have to capture them. They're not going to stay there forever, um, for example. And then the characters, like all these, you know, kind of interesting uh, looking people. And then my grandmother, who I knew wasn't going to be around forever, let me just put her on film. So there was a lot of like this, this, this hurry. I, I just felt this, this great compulsion to kind of capture and record um, all these people, you know, as a documentarian back then, even like before I knew what it was like to be a documentarian, I, I wanted to, to, to kind of collect and capture and record these things that would soon be disappearing before our eyes. And actually the old footage of Shirkers is very much a kind of a, like a documentation of a Singapore that once was. But a very specific kind of Singapore where I refused to show a single skyscraper. I, it was a very curated version of it. But then what documentary isn't, you know? Right, absolutely. Yeah, and, and maybe we should talk a bit about just even how one goes about making a movie when you were, I mean, how you were late teenagers, right? Like 18, 19? Yeah, um, yeah. 
at, at that age, and this is maybe how we can start talking about George, because it seems like he was actually pretty fundamental to getting you guys together and helping in some way um, before disappearing yeah. with the movie. It seems like he was actually yeah. a useful person to have around until he... He was. No, he really was. I mean, the thing is, like, you know, when you're like three um, 19-year-old girls, Kodak's not going to give you free footage for... I mean, like, you know, it was Sophie and Jasmine went into Kodak to ask them for a free film to play with. And Kodak gave us free 16 millimeter film and the, the film equipment houses too. But the thing is that we, if they hadn't known that we, you know, had a mentor, I mean, like we needed George as a figurehead, like as the responsible party that is signing off on all this, that we're working with a grown man, like in his forties um, from America, who is going to direct this film. Otherwise, like these companies are not going to trust us with their equipment. So George was really useful in that um, respect. I mean, he may not know how to operate a lot of things. He may not know how to direct the movie, but he was very useful to us as the grown-up that we needed to kind of front the project. You know what I mean? Right. Um, he was a great storyteller, and he was great, um, you know, even for other kids. Like, you know, these, these kids would not come and work on this project for free. It was just going to be kids. It's going to be like, it, it was. it would have been like Bugsy Malone, you know, kids running around playing at grown-ups. But to have this one grown up there was um especially in the places as conservative as Singapore, um, you know, they, they people respect the authority. You know, parents would let their children out of school to be in a film if there was a grown up in charge. And so George was a person, you know, in the in a position of responsibility. Of course he 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 did stuff that was completely um wrong at the end. But um but yeah, so that's he was very useful to us. And and how did you divvy out responsibility? Because I, I, I really, this is something that becomes clear when people watch the documentary, but at least as like a, you know, someone who's not 18 or 19, I was still deeply impressed by how enterprising you all were. Um, can you tell us about your, just your various responsibilities you wrote and starred in yeah. Shirkers and it's your idea. What about Jasmine and Sophia? They were also fundamental. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was kind of like dictating what I wanted for production design and locations as well. And then um, we deployed a bunch, a whole team of, you know, location scouts who came, who went around the country, like taking videos and and doing pictures and sending them back. And then we decided in the locations. Jasmine um, was, you know, kind of like the assistant director, so she was just taking care of the logs, you know, when we shot. Um, Sophie, Sophie was really the the producer of the project so she would call the bus companies and try to get us secure us buses that eventually we you know we got a few buses to shoot off and and then we also hijacked a few um i guess she was like writing letters hoping to get um funding for this film of course none of that panned out but she was the one doing the the kind of grown-up job of writing these grown-up letters you know and signing them off um you know as sophie of course like people would be horrified to realize it was just this 19-year-old girl writing as an EP. But um, that was how we did it. Um, and it was everybody pulling their resources together. Um, you know, props came from our homes. Characters were relatives. And um, we invaded everybody's homes to shoot in. I mean, we shot in like 100 different locations, which is a lot for, for kids. That's a lot. Yeah, that's, that's a, a lot. lot. It was because my, my script was the first draft. And and there was nobody vetting it to say this was impractical. So we did it. And George was, was saying to me many times that, you know, you wrote a Fellini film. It's like way too many characters and way too many locations. But I'm like, yeah, but you said, just go ahead. And we're shooting it off the first draft. But, you know, that there was a certain freshness, 
I guess, like, I was, like, ashamed of it for a long time. But looking at the script now, I'm like, okay, I can see why there was a, he went for it. Like, there was a certain kind of lack of, um, lack of fear. You know, there's a certain kind of innocence. And um, I think it was mainly that. Like, the thing that made us feel everything was possible was that nobody else was doing it. And nobody else was saying no. And we were, like, just these gung-ho kids who, you know, just thought, um, I mean, especially Jasmine and me, who had just come from this, this drama school where um, we were in this kind of pilot program for theater and stud- theater studies and drama. And we just felt like we were doing so much at school and really ambitious plays that we just didn't feel like coming out of high school, it was going to be any different, that we could just keep going and just keep doing impossible things. And no one's telling us no. So why not just go for it? Yeah, which really clarifies, and this is something that absolutely comes through in in Shirkers, the documentary, really clarifies that when George leaves with the footage, it isn't, you know, it's not just a movie. This was this was like a huge creative act. This was something you can just you can tell. I mean, anyone who's not 19 is watching this and thinking, like, I remember being 19 and just feeling this creative freedom and not knowing what the limits were and not knowing that there were things I shouldn't be doing creatively. Yeah. No, that's the thing. It's like, it's amazing. I mean, like, you hit it right. He took so much more than just the physical film. It was everything, all our, you know, enthusiasm. I'm not, I, I wouldn't say innocence. I would say um, energy, um, optimism, um, creative freedom, and fearlessness, which is a huge right. thing. And like in making this film and rediscovering this film and making this documentary, um, I feel like I've actually rediscovered that part of me. And I feel like in, on some level, I'm making this film as a duet with my younger self. You know, it's like I, I rediscovered my my secret superhero identity and my secret superhero identity was my 19 year old self. And we we're making this film together with um, I somehow rediscovered the energy and the fearlessness a little bit and and just really went for it in terms of, you know, taking risks um, and telling the story creatively Um you know, just as a filmmaker in editing and sound in taking all these creative leaps I would have done at 19 had the technology been available to me. Right. And, 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 and when you, when you get the movie back and after three years you open it, what gets your mind going about making this documentary? Like, how do you, how do you decide that this is what you're going to do? Not that you're not just going to, you know, make this, make this movie and, and because you didn't have sound for it. Right. No, I did not. But also beyond that, I just thought that's just, you know, the most that can come off out of that would be you have this odd little um, novelty film, maybe it may not cut together. I was kind of horrified at seeing my performance. And then without sound, you have to, you know, put in entry titles or you have to do something else. I mean, it's just, but you know, the story around it, the story is so much more compelling, so much more interesting. It's such a parable of youth and friendship and loss and rediscovery but how could you not want to tell that story? I mean, it was always, it was, it, this is a story that's been playing in my head for 25 years. Like, why would you not tell that story? Because I feel like the footage now lives its best life in this film. It would live an interesting life as a, as a footnote, um, as a completed, you know, cut together um, film, like fictional version of the original Shirkers. But I think it lives its best life and has its most haunting, like qualities um, exposed in, in this version where you explain the context of this and that and the, you know, and, and, and we're now seeing that these locations no longer exist. And the fact that I was like doing things like sitting on the middle of 
like on a railway track, on a, on, right. a, on an active railway track, or 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 in the middle of the highway. I mean, like all these things, you know, when you see them in context of seeing it now, rather than in the context of one surreal little film from a faraway place a long time ago, um, I think it's much more interesting anyway. In the movie as well, you say that you don't like your performance in the movie, but I have to, I think anyone who's seeing the footage um, from the 1992 project yeah. is deeply impressed. I, like, this is not, I mean, this just does not look like the work of, like, teenagers at all. It, it, like, it's just really, I, yeah. mean, I think you really pointedly, there's this great moment in, in, in the documentary when you, when you do side-by-sides of things from your shirkers and things that, you know, Wes Anderson was doing in his early films and in Ghost yeah. World, and there's just this sense of, you know, there's just this sense of like, kinship. yeah, this, yeah, this kinship, like the stylistic, yeah, energetic, I know. Like beginning of the career. Youth. I was, I was like so happy to see those films, um, because you know I was happy and sad because when I saw Ghost World and I saw Rushmore and I recognized the sudden kinship with Shirkers, but I couldn't tell anyone. I couldn't. There was no one to tell it to because I had no proof that I had tried to do something that was very similar in spirit and in actually in in in. Execution also, maybe. Um, but there was no no way I could describe it. So I had to keep it a secret. But it was a secret smile. Like, it was a secret within myself. So it was a painful thing. But it was also, like, gratifying to know that we had done, we, we had tried, and we had friends out there doing the same thing. Right. So before we go, um, has this reignited your film career? <laughs> Is there more to expect? I, yeah, no, for sure. I am just making up for lost time. I mean, when making this film, as I said, you just rediscover your... Uh, confidence and, and you know, as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, and and you know you're sharing it with the world, and people see it. Um, so yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of like really going to be quite very busy very soon. I can't talk about them yet, but yeah, <laughs> that's really exciting, uh, and I I really can't wait. Very exciting, yeah. Well, thank you for um, giving us your time. This is Sandy Tan, and please go watch Shirkers on Netflix. You have no excuse because I know you have a subscription. It is really wonderful. And uh, yeah, Sandy, thank you. This is great. No, thank you so much. This was really good fun. Well, that does it for this week's second episode. If you're hungry for more, you can read us all on VF.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at Little Gold Men, and individually, I'm at Rylaws. Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was produced and edited by Danielle Roth, and this week's award for the Academy's best option for what they should do without a host goes to Mike Hogan. Bunch of thoughtful choices by theater people. Set against the backdrop of 1950s Poland, Cold War follows two people of differing backgrounds and temperaments who begin an almost impossible romance. Driven editorially and emotionally by its music, Cold War, shot in shimmering black and white, is more than a stunning love story. It's an epic narrative, directed by Pavel Pawlikowski, winner of Best Director at Cannes International Film Festival. Cold War is the winner of five European Film Awards, including Best Film and Best Director, and has been named Best Foreign Language Film by the National Board of Review and the New York Film Critics Circle. Cold War, for your consideration in all categories. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.